Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. The following story contains material that may be offensive and emotionally disturbing, and may not be suitable for all ages. Listener discretion is advised. This is An Eye for a Killing, the true story of Scotland's most notorious serial killers, Burke and Hare. Episode 4, Anger on the Streets. It's Christmas Eve, 1828. William Burke and his partner Helen McDougall go on trial today at the High Court in Edinburgh for the murder of a woman, Maggie Doherty, whose body was found in a box. What lies beneath the charge is a ten-month killing spree for cash. The Edinburgh mob doesn't know the full details yet, that 16 people have been murdered and their bodies sold to an anatomist, Dr Robert Knox. But when they find out, they will try to exact justice of a kind. Where are my shoes? I need my shoes now! Sir William Ray, Scotland's Lord Advocate, the Chief Public Prosecutor, is in a foul mood at home. Oh, the buttons come off my sh... Damn it. In order to increase the odds of conviction, a decision is made to deal separately with the two mass murderers, William Hare and William Burke. Hare, the younger of the two, has been offered immunity from prosecution if he testifies against Burke. He will give evidence today. But rumours on the street are spreading. Burke trial today! There's a neighbour went drinking with him. He came to and they were putting a pillow on his face. I hear Dr Knox drains the blood oh. and drinks it. True confessions. One penny. The missing boy, daft Jimmy Wilson. His mother's heartfelt words. It's a cold morning. There's hard frost and a clear sky. In the offices of the Edinburgh Current newspaper, Thomas Galbraith prepares to cover a trial he knows could make his name. He's prepared. He's ambitious. His editor knows it. We'll write it up fast and give your notes to the runner. You'll rush them here and we'll start setting the type. It's under control, don't worry. What about the uh, Wilson woman who lost her boy? I sent the illustrator. He's with her now. How tall was he, Mrs Wilson? Up to here on me. He was stooped a bit. All right. How's that? It's not him at all. No. I'm going on what you're telling me. It's him, but no him. He had a spark, a laugh. He looks flat. We'll go again. In a wide street of big houses, far from the high court and far from Tanner's close, Sir William Ray kisses his wife goodbye and heads for the trial. I hope it goes well. Thank you. I may not be home till the morning.
Is this all I get? In jail, William Burke has served a frugal breakfast. I'm starving. <coughs> Not well. Take it or leave it. Where's Helen? I want to speak to my wife. What a lot for a killer. <coughs> I'm not walking up there. Shut it. Move. William Hare, mass murderer, is walked incognito through the streets of Edinburgh to the courthouse. He's wearing a wide-brim hat pulled down over his head and an oversized coat. His jailer walks beside him. People will know me. Let's hope not. For your sake. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Up that close here. It's busy. Shut your mouth and keep walking. Uh, Good morning, Sandy. David. In the court's robing room, the judges gather. The Lord Justice Clerk, David Boyle, the Lords Pip Milley and Mackenzie, and Lord Meadowbank, Sandy McConaughey. It's some business. It's grim. Have you seen the mob outside? Just take your time. No rushing. When you come in through these doors, you're in a court, a solemn place. You take your seats in an orderly fashion. No talking. Move up. Careful. Move along one. Uh, room for one more in here. Let me along. There's no space here. It's lawyers only. No, it's not. Budge up. Hey, you're crushing me. So? What is that smell? Oh my God, man. Have you, have you messed yourself? No. I've been sleeping outside. Maggie Doherty was my mother. I swear by almighty God... Members of the all-male jury are sworn in and take their seats. Burke and McDougall are led into the dock and sit flanked by two constables. After long legal argument lasting hours, a decision is made. They will not be tried for the murder of the teenage Mary Patterson and the boy of the street, Jamie Wilson. The charge will simply apply to the murder of Maggie Doherty. Someone once told me, a hundred years is a blink of an eye in Edinburgh. Well, blink twice and we're here. Christmas Eve, 1828. The trial of William Burke and Helen McDougall. And the evidence of a mass murderer, William Hare, who's as guilty as Burke. My name is William Hare. I'm 21, yes. Tell us what you witnessed. The woman was on the floor, and William Burke had stride legs on top of her. She cried out a little, and he kept in her breath. Did he lay himself down upon her? Yes. He pressed down her head with his breast. He put one hand under her nose and the other under her chin. He stopped her breath. For how long? Ten or fifteen minutes. Did she appear dead then? She wasn't moving. You were in the room, William Hare. Tell the court what you were doing all the time this was happening. I was sitting on the chair. Hare's graphic evidence propels one of the people from his seat on the public benches. Let me out. 
Excuse me. And he scrambles out onto the street. What's happening in there? He's told how they killed Margie Dockery. They sold her body to Dr Knox. I think it's time we moved. Let's go. Pass the potatoes, please. What is it, Fergus? A mile south of the High Court, Robert Knox is interrupted at his dinner by a servant. I'm sorry to disturb you, sir. There's trouble in the city tonight. What kind of trouble? Your name came up in court, sir. <sighs> what of it? Some of the people are agitated. There's talk of a mob gathering. Let the constables know. Forgive me, sir. You might need to be armed. <laughs> I don't need a weapon. We are many. They will not stop us. A crowd gathers. Someone's made an effigy of Dr Knox. Let's go! Up Leith Street they head, picking up numbers on the way. They head south towards the good doctor's house. On the south bridge, a police officer attempts to halt the crowd and tries to pull the effigy from those carrying it. But he is felled by several blows to the head. The current reporter is detailed in his account. The crowd, which increased rapidly, proceeded onward to Newington, where the effigy was suspended by the neck from a tree, fire being also put to it, but which soon went out. The figure was then torn to pieces amidst loud huzzas. Up to this period, no actual violence had been committed. Apart, that is, from the constable who suffered blows to the head on the South Bridge. The appearance of the crowd was very threatening. The whole railings in front of the doctor's house being packed with people who were shouting in a wrathful manner, blending the names of the Westport murderers with that of the medical gentleman so often alluded to as connected with those horrid transactions. A police superintendent, Captain Stewart, and another officer gain entry to Knox's house by the rear. Inside, the family are afraid, but Knox himself is defiant. Dr Knox, I want you to take your family. No, sir. My task is to protect you. Do as I say, ma'am. In my house, I am master. Make them go away. That will protect us. We are outnumbered. There's no time. Gather your family and take them out the back door. Is there a neighbour you can trust? I object, sir. Object all you can, but protect your family. Go, now. The current reporter says at this point, Captain Stewart and the other officer make a determined charge from the front door upon the crowd, who instantly retreat to the road, throwing stones. Captain Stewart was considerably injured, but no further rioting took place. The mob, which may be said to have consisted principally of boys and young lads, among whom eight or ten bakers seemed to be the most active, then dispersed quietly, but reassembled in different parts of the city. When you examine the past, that other country, it's the detail that sometimes ensnares. Why these bakers? 
Why in particular are they part of the mob intent on justice of a kind? Are they in a group heading for shift work or coming off shift? Did Knox in particular enrage their baker sensibilities? Or is joining in the melee a release from the sweltering heat of the ovens? You can mull over these questions but never fully know the answers. Nor can you know how the esteemed representative of the current knew they were bakers. Were they wearing white jackets and tall boy hats as they rioted? Were the stones that smashed Knox's windows thrown by well-flowered hands? It will remain a beguiling mystery. There is no mystery in the High Court. Two men aided and abetted by two women with varying degrees of complicity murdered 16 people. The only question is, will Burke and Helen McDougall be convicted of one solitary murder? It's a long day in court. Lawyers tire. Concentration levels dip as the hours pass and night seeps into Christmas Day morning. And silently in a dark corner of the packed courtroom, with the windows open and the light flickering, stands the wraith of Maggie Doherty. Her in the red striped dress. She doesn't get a word in Edgeways, as she is described as the old woman or the spay wife. She seems to be a mere detail in the whole appalling business. But she was a mother and a survivor until the day that William Burke saw her and sized her up. I was hungry a long time, and it never stops. It eats at you. <laughs> it's a strange word to use. You want to eat, and you can't, because there's nothing to eat. And then it eats at you. People eating grass. People dead. Their bones sticking through skin. I've seen them. In Donegal... I found a family dead in a broken-down building. I took the mother's coat because I was cold. I'm ashamed. I was wrong. But I was cold. I was hungry. Lord, I was hungry. You don't know hunger till you see it and feel it in your gut every day. Michael, my son, he was always the strong one. He was off and away when the times got hard. I followed him here. I was sick in the boat in the storm. I worked on farms before I got ill. I heard Michael was over on the east coast. I thought I'd walk to Edinburgh to find him. Michael was strong when he was born. And it'd be strong for me. I knew that. If I found him. But I was late in the coming. I gashed my foot on the way. And I wouldn't stop bleeding. I wrapped it tight with cloth and herpled the rest of the way. I slept in the fields before coming into the town. And he'd gone. Oh, Michael. Michael, bless your soul. 
It's just me looking for you. I prayed. I found a church and prayed, and I asked for help and to be saved. But I heard nothing back. The drinking helps when you're hungry and cold, and it's black, dark, and you can't see the way forward, and you're lost. A lost soul. Drinking and a little dancing never harmed anyone. He was a charmer, that Mr. Dougherty. Although they kept saying, what are you calling him that? His name is Burke. And he said, oh, never mind what they say. They don't know what they're talking about. Dance with me, auntie. And we danced. But then they fought. And then they came for me. Dawn comes to Edinburgh. Christmas Day, 1828. The prosecution and the defence sum up their cases. The jury is set to retire and consider its verdict. William Hare, the mass murderer who turned King's evidence and gets off scot-free, expects to leave after the trial and vanish. But there's a slight blip. He finds himself held in a prison cell and facing a lawyer. The mother and sister of one of his victims, Jamie Wilson, intend to sue him for the colossal sum of £500. I've seen that, Jamie, but I didn't know him. That's all you get from me. The lawyer, George Munro, is determined to pursue the case. You were involved in the murder of James Wilson, were you not? You and William Burke killed a defenceless lad, holding him down and suffocating him. And sold his body to Dr Knox in Surgeon's Square. You're not answering, Mr Hare. Where do you intend to go, should you ever leave here? Mm. The mob is out there waiting for you. Are you afraid of the mob, Mr Hare? He is, but he isn't saying. He's not saying a word. The attempt to sue him falters in law, given the immunity here is promised by the Crown. In the night, a woman walks by the prison. Margaret Hare, lucky to her friends, although she doesn't have any now, walks quickly through the streets. But she's seen and recognised. Yes, Lucky here. No, let go. Yes, I've seen you in court. Yes, I've come. Help! Where's the baby now? Hey, she's getting away. Quack! Get on. Get her. Get her. Get her. They drag her to the edge of a bridge, intent on throwing her over. But two police officers appear, weighing in to stop the summary proceedings. Get back, all of you! Go and get back. And, and you, on your way. Go on, out of my sight. And Lucky Hare disappears into the dark. William Hare himself is roused from the protection of his jail cell. Dressed in dark clothes and thrust a scarf to cover his face, he's hurried through the night to board a coach leaving Edinburgh. He's given an alias, Mr Black, and some coins to tide him over. His jailer-turned-companion on the night scurry feels dirty helping the killer, 
but plays his part well in the charade. All aboard now. All aboard. My gentleman here is booked. Here's his ticket. Uh, very good, sir. One outside. Uh, climb up. Are you comfortable there, Mr. Black? I'm cold. Bye, Mr. Black. I wish you well home. Yeah! It's shortly after 8 pm, and the coach heads southwest from Edinburgh into the night. After 20 miles of hard driving, it stops at a roadside inn. The inside passengers disembark and are joined in the warmth by a frozen Mr. Black who stands back in the shadows. But in an act of kindness, the innkeeper ushers him forward. Come near the fire. You're, you're cold there, come. No, I, I'm fine. Come on, you can't be cold there. Hare takes a couple of paces towards the fire and in the light his features are clear for all to see. It wouldn't matter, but one of the passengers inside the coach is a lawyer, Douglas Sanford. I know you, sir. What? I know who you are. I'm Robert Black. No, you're not. Let go of me. You're William Hare. I was in court. I saw you. Let go of me. I will hurt you, sir. These people here will hurt you more. But I believe in the law, and the law, God help us, protects you. There now. I'll keep your secret, but you keep away from me and other decent people on the coach. But he doesn't. Here, ever the self-pitying, ever the hard done by, approaches the coach driver as they go back out into the night and suggests that since he is cold, he could take the one spare seat inside for the next stage of the journey to Dumfries. For a coin, the coach driver agrees. But Samford is having none of it. He's not coming in here. Okay, get out. My money's as good as yours. I've warned you. I'm cold. I will tell. Don't, don't do that. Just, just let me sit. Get out. No. This man is William Hare. Oh, oh, no. Get out. Get out. Get out. <laughs> Rebuffed. Here resumes his freezing perch on the roof of the coach, and inside Sanford is questioned about his knowledge of the killer William Hare. In the morning, when the coach arrives at the King's Arms in Dumfries, word spreads quickly. People crowd into the inn to try and get a glimpse of Hare. At first it's benign, Robberneckers trying to stand next to him in the 19th century equivalent of a selfie. But it gets ugly the moment a man in the crowd suggests mildly that they could always take Hare outside and hang him. The police are called and clear the inn. A mob assembles on the main bridge over the River Nith. It's thought that Hare is heading back to Ireland, so he'll be getting the Port Patrick coach mid-morning. The plan is to remove him from the coach and drown him in the river. But on the instructions of the police, the coach leaves empty for Port Patrick. When the mob discover that Hare is not inside, they descend on the inn and lay siege to it. Hare is spirited out of a back window at the inn and taken to the town jail. The mob lays siege to it all day and into the night, breaking lamps and windows. The authorities swear in special constables and arm them with batons. The jail is guarded to protect William Hare he who preyed on the unprotected. 
That evening, a senior police officer approaches the mob. Listen to me. Go home. There is nothing for you here. In the early hours of the morning, people tire. They realise they're not going to get their man. They start to drift away. Go home to your beds. Hare, meanwhile, cowering in a cell, is roused to action under cover of darkness. Get up. It's time now. Am I safe? Get on. They hurry him through the silent night streets and out of the town and onto a stretch of road. That was England. But I... Just go. Where am I supposed to go? I don't care. As long as it's far away. William Hare, mass murderer. William Hare still sorry for himself. William Hare still hard done by. Walks away into the dawn on the Annan Road. There are rumours immediately of sightings, but the last possible view we have of him is on the morning of Sunday 8th of February 1829, when he is seen walking two miles south of Carlisle. And then he vanishes. Unlike his fellow murderer William Burke and his partner Helen MacDougall, at the High Court in Edinburgh, Christmas Day morning, 1828, the prosecution and defence sum up their cases. Then from the bench, the Lord Justice Clerk David Boyles measured words to the jury. I now leave it in your hands, and I'm satisfied you will return such a verdict as justice requires. If you have doubts, reasonable and rational doubts on the subject of the prisoner's guilt, or either of them, you are bound to give them the benefit of these doubts without allowing your own minds to be influenced or carried away by any prejudices or popular clamour that might exist against the panels. On the other hand, if you are in your consciences satisfied of the guilt of the prisoners, you must return a verdict accordingly. <laughs> you may retire now to consider your verdict. Court. It is half past eight in the morning on Christmas Day. The pale winter sun has risen. On the street, word is spreading. The jury's out! The jury's out! But not for long. The members of the jury don't think there's much to decide. After 50 minutes, they return. Gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? We have. The courtroom and all of Edinburgh holds its breath. William Burke looks up. He stares at the foreman of the jury. In the next episode, we hear the jury's verdict. While one man, who never appears in court, fears for his life, the man at the centre of all 16 murders, the anatomist, Dr Knox. An Eye for a Killing is a BBC Scotland production. Written and dramatised by Colin MacDonald and presented by Jack Loudon. Featuring the voices of Gavin Mitchell, James Bowl, Stuart Macquarie, Andy Clark, Simon Donaldson, Maureen Carr, Lucian McAvoy, Robert Jack, James Rutger, 
Paul Young. The producer is Bruce Young. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.